Welcome back to the second hour of Dateline New Haven on WNHHFM, New Haven's home for community radio. I'm Paul Bass, inviting you to look behind the headlines and the stories that make New Haven tick. Well, we have someone in New Haven who helps us understand what's happening in Israel, and there's no more important time than now to tap her knowledge. Sibby Smilvitz lives in New Haven, and she's the American correspondent for Israel's largest circulation print newspaper, Yidiot Acharnot, or Ynetnews.com, right? That's the website in English. And Sibby's been here how many years? Six. Six years in America, writing National Correspondent America for Israel. And uh, we're going to talk to her now about the horrors taking place in the Middle East. And, and Sippy, before we talk about the journalism part of it, how does it affect you as someone who is an Israeli? Uh, it's been awful. I'm going to get you close to the mic, yeah. It's been, it's been terrible. The, the thing about a tragedy in such magnitude when it comes to Israel, which is such a small country, is that somehow you know somebody who knows somebody who was affected. So everybody has friends or friends of friends or they know something. Somebody, uh, I have a very good friend of mine, one of my best friends. Uh, he lost three family members. They were murdered. Another seven are kidnapped. Seven, seven of the kidnaps out of seven, 220 yeah. or whatever it is. So, so he, yeah. yeah, so he had 10 family members in this thing. Uh, and, Where and were they? They live in Berry, Kibbutz Berry, and and is that that idealistic kibbutz, the kind of peace kibbutz yes, where they yes. had all the great relations with people in Gaza? Almost, almost all the victims comes from these kibbutzim that they're all uh, what you would call peace now, shalom achshav. They, they they're all to the left. They're all peace activists. Um, <laughs> some of them serious peace activists that just they died. And, and so your friend didn't. How did he escape? He, he, he lives. Right in, he lives in Tel Aviv. But his family members his, were living. In yeah. The, in so so he has a sister that was murdered, and another sister is kidnapped, and there's a whole bunch of kids. Um, the youngest is three. They're all kidnapped. So three year old is kidnapped. Yeah. yeah. No, from his family, the uh, the youngest is three. So it's it's been horrible. You cannot fathom any of this. You cannot understand it. It's just, um, and, and when you hear exactly what happened, the level of barbarism, the thing that were done, it's monstrous. It's not even. Well, it's so interesting that it was videotaped on purpose to show the world, to show the barbarism with the calculation that Israel would then respond with great force and the world's, yeah. and that world's uh, would go be against Israel for that. And also, there's sort of a high on violence aspect of the left that when they saw the barbarity, it actually thrilled people. Yep. The violence led to thrilled celebration about what they did to Israelis and the people's heads they cut off on camera. And yeah, and, and since th and <laughs> the flip side is that a lot of these people, um, they, can't f they can't fathom that something like that was done, that this level of barbarism happened, so you just deny it. It never happened. But it did. There's a lot of food. How about your family there? I don't have a family there. No, no. Uh, we are uh, we are Tel Aviv people. Uh, but how is it affecting them? It affects everyone because first you have rockets every day, every night. So your family in Tel Aviv are they every day going to shelters? Or always, sirens. Always those sirens. They're in shelters twice a day. Um, it affecting. Yeah. Or do you are you in touch with them regularly? Are you scared? Yeah. Yeah. It's. That's another problem. You know, when you're away, 
in a way, it's, it, it helps you because I don't have sirens and I don't go to the shelter. And when no, it's I, interesting though, you do live in a street where there are so many sirens day and night. Yeah, relatively. I can't believe how many sirens go up and down your street. What does that give you? Make you think about the other no. part of the world? Do you just sleep through it? No, no, no. Because you're near the hospital. Yeah. No, I, I came to New Haven from New York, so <laughs> it's it's really nothing. But no, no. But if you're in Israel right now, that's a real trauma. I mean, you jump, everything jump, and and when you're here, you know, I, I leave my apartment, I go outside. It's beautiful, it's quiet, it's the same really cute new haven that I really like. But you can't, you can't detach. You think all the time about the, what, what's happening over well, there. I remember after Ukraine was attacked, I would walk around town and think, I'm just walking by these buildings and I don't have to worry that any minute. The way in Gaza, you know, first in Israel and in Gaza and now the, you know, the fi- missiles being fired from Hezbollah, that the Palestinians and the Israelis always have to worry if they walk down the street, all of a sudden with no notice, a bomb's going to come blow up a building or blow you up. You know, that's that's a different way of living. Yeah, I feel yeah. so almost guilty or fortunate that we're not living that way. Yeah, the guilt is a real thing for, for me as an Israeli who lives here, and I know everybody's there. You feel guilty. On the other hand, it's not easy. Time difference, uh, just being... You're in the news all the time. You don't know what's going on. If you don't hear from my brother for three hours, you get nervous. Really? How often do you yeah. hear from your brother? I, I try to talk with him, you know, a few times a day. Really? You know, Was that true before October Messenger and, and things like that. Uh, not to that extent, no. No. And he's in Tel Aviv? He's in Tel Aviv. He's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm not worried. But, yeah. I mean, the, the country is in a complete shock. It's just overwhelming and there is fear and there is all the emotions that you can imagine there is a shame there is embarrassment how easy it was for them to just step over the fence go into our I think that was kind of heavy I think it was important for people to kind of challenge this myth that Israel's smarter than everybody else, right? Like Hamas is really smart. Donald Trump said it. He said they're smart. He was right. I mean, they they were smart. I don't. I don't. Yeah. They got I, details about where everything was in the kibbutz, what they had to knock out to get rid of the communication system. They just walked across. I yeah, exactly. And I mean, I I guess you can compare it a little bit to 9-11 yeah I, I did because that was very smart and I remember too. the first days running into an, yeah. a, a state representative I know who's African American and he for him what it meant as an African American and I would always challenge sort of America's ideas about the world is that he said we always assumed we're smarter yeah and that made us safe and these guys were smart yeah but in Israel in this case it was also a terrible government decision because the soldiers were not there they moved everybody to, to protect. Right, they made an assumption that the threat was from Hezbollah and, and Hamas did a really good job of hiding their intentions. Yes, and they trust, um, you know, it's high-tech nation. So they trust technology and the human the soldiers, they were moved to, to the West Bank to defend settlers. And that's part of Netanyahu's conception. We leave Hamas, we'll just give them some money. They won't do anything and we'll defend the, the West Bank, which is the place that they 
really care about. And that left the South completely exposed. And it's been like this for 15 years. It's not new. Rockets didn't start now. It's been years of rockets to those kibbutzim and small towns, and nothing was done. And Netanyahu was warned by generals. He did get notice, and he said, you're being alarmist. I don't want to hear it. They said, hold off That's on the, this changes to the Constitution that is dividing yeah. the nation and keeping people not signed up. And Hamas knew that the Israel was vulnerable because yeah. of its political chaos. Yeah, we, we uh, on October 6th, the Israeli society was already very fragile and very exposed and very weak and extremely divided, more divided than ever. So I don't know how long they worked on this Hamas, but it's probably been a while. And they came and just nobody waited for them. And I think the the easiness in which this happened in what should be the uh, a safe place for the Jewish people, I mean, that's why Israel was created after the Holocaust, a safe home for the Jewish people. And suddenly... <laughs> there's nothing safe about it they just came cross the fence and killed these babies and the level of fear is i cannot even describe sibi smilovitz is the american correspondent for israel's largest circulation print newspaper and she lives in new haven she's here on dateline new haven what about since then so we all knew i mean everything was spoken this wasn't hidden yeah. hamas said we did this because people were forgetting about the palestinians that we knew if we did an attack, Israel's strategy has always been, especially people in charge of Israel right now, to hit you back harder. Mm-hmm. So they knew, even though the world would see the images, the first few days of you know, 1,400 or 1,200 Israelis being kidnapped and murdered, that soon we'd be seeing weeks and weeks of bombs just yeah. leveling Gaza. We'd see babies buried under rubble, hospitals being destroyed, people, a million people displaced from their home. We kind of saw that movie happening before it started. There were people who said, including some of the victims' families in Israel, said, let's not do what they want us to do. Yeah. That they thought it'd be smarter to wait, even though it's a hard thing to do. Like if in America, if Mexico sent missiles and they continue to send missiles, Americans would not allow their leaders to just stop and be smart about it. They want us to invent, invade Afghanistan and Iraq and destroy the place like we did if 9-11 didn't do any good. So there were all these voices saying, Jewish voices, don't react that way. What, what was your take on that? That's complicated. It is, and, uh, I, and I don't know military strategy enough. You know, yeah. obviously, to me, it seemed like it'd be smarter no. to target. Right. Yeah. Now, now, even on, on, on an emotional level, it's not like the previous rounds. You know, they, they threw some missiles, Israel attacked back, and then you could say, that was stupid. D- don't react like that. This is different. This, is, this was the worst day for Jewish people since the Holocaust. This is different. When you see the images, it's first, naturally, I think people want revenge. I think this is just the most natural reaction. Um, what you need when everybody is so scared and just want to go there and let's kill everybody, and that includes whatever is left from the Israeli left, yeah, it's a consensus. Go there. Don't stop until we kill every Hamas member, which is impossible. But yeah, that's, that's the natural emotional reaction. But for that, you need leaders. You need 
you need cold leader, cool mind. Which I had thought Netanyahu would be, despite yes. him being corrupt. And, Why? You know, I thought he had a cool head, and he's not. Is no, that no. because he's trying to save his position? That's because he's compromised. Be- that's because you, you cannot trust him right now. Even if he makes something that may look like a good decision, you don't know why he took this, this decision. That's why, and that, that was the purpose of the demonstration throughout the year before. Somebody who is under indictment, somebody who only... His mind's only occupied with his own political survival. He cannot be the prime minister. And now, anything he's doing, you, you don't trust him. You don't know if he's doing it for the sake of the country, if he's doing it for himself. Um, why he isn't more urgent to bring the kidnappers back? Because it's not. It doesn't seem like it's an urgency. And he's scared of his own people. He's not like in a moment. Joe Biden yes. was the leader who spoke to the exactly. Israelis. He yeah. went there and he went out and saw people and reassured them in almost Bill Clinton way. And hugged and them. And then Yahoo was hiding from his own people at this Still moment does. of truth. Still does. He never, he, he didn't went to any funeral. He doesn't meet. Um, I guess he knows he would become the object of scorn if he went. He just lives in his own, you know, metaphorical bunker. And oh. he just... So all this, I, mean, I think the White House, you mentioned Joe Biden, I think the reaction of the White House in the first few days was at least partly a result of them understanding that Netanyahu is not up to the task at this point. He has uh, 80% of the Israeli people, that's the last poll that, that happened last week, they want him gone. So why isn't he gone? Because it, we don't do this in the middle of the war. So what do you think that means for how long the war will go on? Well, I think it's going to be long. I think it's as long as Netanyahu is in, is in charge. And why is that? Because as long as there's a war, you will not see those massive protests who would be... If so you're suggesting that Netanyahu would prolong the war in order to prolong his stay in power? That's Netanyahu. He's probably the most cynical leader I've ever seen in my life. This is like one of those moments that the most cynical... I mean, Richard Nixon was the ultimate cynical leader. Yes, and he yes. had moments of truth, like opening to Soviet Union, opening to China. Yeah. Where he, or when he conceded the 1960 election that might have been stolen from him. You know, even cynical political leaders have moments when they... LBJ yeah. was the most cynical politician in America, and he believed so deeply in the Voting Rights Act. And they, they kind of feel like all my cynicism, all stuff, when there's a moment of truth for my country, or Mike Pence... When there's a moment to choose for my country, I'm going to do something I might not otherwise do because you need to do that. That's what it means to be a citizen, what it means to be a leader, what it means to be a human being. Yeah, I, I think in Netanyahu's case, I think he's probably thinking that what, whatever he's doing is for the good of the country. I'm pretty sure that he believes that. But uh, no, it's not because it's all about his own survival. And this is the worst time to have a leader that is so compromised and so untrusted by a very, very scared uh, society. So that's one thing, you know, you, you are a writer, so people, you have some influence in how people think about this stuff. And I've been noticing how writers who are Jewish or p- sympathetic to Israel, but very unsympathetic to the government, not just the Netanyahu government, but the Hamas-like people in the government, right? Like uh, Itamar Ben-Gavir, who was, used to be banned from politics because he was such a murderous racist and like you know he he wants to just 
give people weapons in the West Bank to mow people down. But, and then I noticed that people feel that it's, it's a tough line to walk because obviously the, the conflict didn't start yesterday. Obviously, Israel's been making moves that make it harder for years to settle this conflict. But yet, if you lead with that, if you say that first, you're elevating what Hamas did as though that's a normal tit for tat. Yeah. Yeah. And you're excusing the terrorism and the brutality. Like, if you disagree with how Israel responds, that doesn't mean it's the same thing. Like, they're responding, even though th there was a whole history of this, and we can argue forever about how it all started. I know it's like Brett Stevens, you know, he's a conservative, he's always pro Netanyahu, he's changed. I noticed that every time he writes, when you get to the end of his article, he kind of mentions, well, we shouldn't have an occupation. That's obviously the root of it. And, and he has, Netanyahu has brought in these really crazy right-wingers, and obviously that's part of it. But he waits to the end because he writes to the balance, and he almost says that in <laughs> passing, which I'm not sure he's wrong. He focuses first on, and, and you know, Israel helped Hamas succeed, but he, he obviously is worried, and I don't blame him, that it's so hard to talk about the roots of this conflict because now when everyone's yelling, they see it all from one way, and they leave out the other side's humanity, right? Either you believe yeah. that Jews are colonialists, even though half of them, you know, even get back thousands of years in the land and they fled concentration camps and came back and were pushed all around Europe and half of them are not white and they're called the white colonial settlers. Yes. But then on the Israeli side, you have the people like Ben Gavir and others who say there are no such things as Palestinians and they didn't have a knock, by the way, is Jews have had Nakbas as well. Like we all have the story. How do we talk about it? How do we put it in context? How are you able to do that as a journalist? It's... <laughs> It's incredibly difficult. First, I think, and that's something that it's more difficult, I think, if I'm here and I speak to people. And I have to start with, first, we can't start the discussion before we say nothing that Israel has ever done justify what Hamas did. Nothing. That's barbarism. They are monsters. Uh, they should be erased. I don't get how the left in this country which normally is against right-wing theocratic fascism. People yeah. who like will kill women for not wearing a veil or will just kill people for being gay and want to have a, that kind of government, how they embrace that nationalism and feels exciting when they commit terrorism or fight to create a right-wing homophobic misogynist caliphate. Yeah. But Israeli nationalism, because nationalism is not necessarily a good thing, but they say it's inherently wrong that there's Jewish nationalism, but it's a heroic that there's fundamentalist, theocratic, fascist, anti-gay and woman. I, I don't get it. I'm, I'm having trouble figuring that out. Yeah, I, th I think the, the, the left, the far left in America and in the global far left, uh, they completely lost its way. They lost their mind. And you cannot, there's no way, even if you, most of these people are either very young very ignorant, very anti-Semite, or they know what they're doing and they're just being cynic. Now, there's all kind of mixing of, you know, it's about race and, and it's about class and it's about anyone who is weak always is always right. And there is the oppressor and the oppressed and it's incredibly complicated. But if you cannot unconditionally say this is medieval barbarism, then whatever moral high ground you think you, you have, you, you don't have that. And what about people who say the hesitancy to criticize the Israeli government? How does that fit into that? So, yeah, 
because we are at war, because there is a, an, an existential fear that I think people in Israel never, never felt, not even in Yom Kippur war, um, then, you know, you gather around the flag. So nobody thinks straight right now. Nobody. In either side. People just <laughs> being crazy. So once you are unequivocally condemned what Hamas did, then we can have a conversation. Okay, then we can say, yes, history didn't start in, uh, on October 7. Stuff happened before. Um, the occupation is bad. That's something that I, I didn't, I didn't change my mind at all. At all. The occupation is the root of all problems. So you can say that. Now, how do you say it when you write back home? That, that's a problem. I you did notice one of the family members of someone killed said, we got to stop the tit for tat. Yes. But yes. Saying you should stop tit for tat is different from saying the person who. Right. So that's, that's the, that's the yeah. challenge. It's it's an incredibly uh, difficult challenge right now, and um, I don't think anybody can think straight at this point. So now, how do you think straight as a reporter? What kind of articles have you been writing? And your audience is Israeli primarily, or yeah. is it worldwide? No, no, no. It's it's completely Israeli, and it's in Hebrew. And I write from where I stand, which is in America. So uh, I report the politics side of it but i remember you cover the presidential elections exactly trends you also do culture yeah right while there was that big israel demonstration in dc you were interviewing you said john ham the guy from Mad Men. yeah i i do like america uh -huh. <laughs> all over everything from politics to to really stupid stuff uh but right now most of what i write is about how um People in Israel are disappointed by American liberals, American progressives, whatever happens in campuses, in universities, uh, the rise in anti-Semitism. So that's mostly what they are interested there. So you're based in New Haven, but you travel. Yeah, I travel. So you said you went to Cornell yeah. where a student, I can't believe it was a student, yeah. posted a threat to murder the students at a dining hall and like someone I'm very close to. I've known him since he was a baby. Eats in that dining hall. Yeah. And I was thinking he had, they were scared there. And his mother, who's close to us, was there that weekend. It was parents weekend. When this threat went and the governor came there. And what, what did you see when you went up to Cornell? So when you go on the ground, it's a little different than what you see on social media. Uh, you go to Cornell, they have like, I think 50,000 students. Over 20% of them are Jews. I mean, it's... 20% of Cornell is Jewish? It's a massive Jewish... It's so funny because my daughter went there and I remember there was so little Jewish activity outside of the Orthodox. Over over 20%. It's the largest Jewish population in any wow. um, Ivy League campus in America. And so it's an incredibly Jewish place. Uh, but they will tell you, Jewish students and Jewish educator and professor and everybody, in, they will tell you that the vast majority of students, they're okay. Nothing is going on. The, the whole madness but is... But when one of their fellow sweet. students post that they're going to murder him and Exactly. Him, so that's okay. terrifying. But that is like one, two, three students. Doesn't it's, take a lot. <laughs> of course. Yeah. That's why it's scaring. But it's not a big 
uh, percentage of the of student population. So you get some perspective, but they will tell you that the anti-Semitism, the level of blunt anti-Semitism in these places, in, in at least in Cornell, since October 7, is nothing like it was before. It's absolutely madness. And that is um, scary and worrisome. <coughs> Even if, if you don't, if you disagree with the Israeli government, but you take your anger on Jews in America, you're not anti-Zionist, you're just anti-Semitic. Well, I mean, like Hamas is the government, that doesn't mean you're against Palestinian people if you're against Hamas. Exactly. You're not anti-Zionist, you're anti-Semite. And the, what about, is there interest in Israel about the rise in anti-Muslim harassment and prejudice? Really. Not really. It's because people are just so caught up in... People are so angry. Because I'm so very concerned angry. about that too yeah. right now. We should. We should because hate is hate. I remember after 9-11, one thing that really struck me. So you remember the intensity of the anti-Muslim reaction? Yeah. I had a friend who's Mizrahi from Israel. <laughs> of course, So he was yeah. dark-skinned, and he got stopped and harassed yeah, because I have, of 9-11. And, of course, the Sikhs. You remember that? Yeah, I have friends. It was friends. bad enough for the Muslims, and that was horrible, Middle Eastern descent. But it was like it was off the charts, that kind of prejudice. Exactly. I know Israelis who were stopped in the airport, yeah, because they looked, quote-unquote. Uh, uh, yeah, so I don't think anybody in Israel care about anything um you have a lot of people in israel at this point and that's including the left like let's destroy gaza we don't care how destroy many gaza yeah because uh, well, what's gonna happen after <laughs> nobody knows it's all emotions now that's what i said it's all it's purely emotion and you look for cool-headed and we didn't have any in america after 9 11 i remember that exactly Exactly. And I guess the Palestinians, when they've been living in their conditions in Gaza, they hard to have a cool head, too. That's true. But let's remember that one main reason why they live in these conditions is Hamas. Right. Because Israel left Gaza 50, 16 years, 2005. 2005 it was. Israel left Gaza a long time ago. There is, there are no Israelis in Gaza. Now you can argue that Israel, you know, the blockage and all kinds of restriction. Yes, but Hamas received billions and billions of dollars, and instead of investment investing in their own people, they just built an army of terror. And was Friedman? I think it was someone wrote to Christoph that. 80% of Palestinians in Gaza supported the two-state solution until Netanyahu took over and made it clear it wasn't going to be possible. Yeah, look, Netanyahu, I, I, I don't hide my opinion. I mean, I, I blame him for so many things that has even nothing to do with this war and everything else. Um, but the reason there is a war right now is Hamas. We're talking to Sibi Smilovitz, who is the American correspondent for Israel's largest circulation print newspaper, Yediyot Achrenot, lives right here in New Haven, but travels around America to try to explain America to Israel. What's it been like for you to do these stories since you are Israeli? Does it make it harder? Do you have any techniques to keep, because you do keep a cool head. You are uh, doing reporting as opposed to yeah. waging war. So what do you, what do you, <laughs> how do you go about your job and how do you get it done? Do you have? I think being far helps. 
uh, no matter how much I try, I can't really understand how people back home feel right now. So I think the distance helps. Uh, it's easier for me to find all kind of escapism. I can just go out and walk in the sun. And what's, what's a fun way for you to start? Like I have trouble stopping the doom scrolling. So it, last night I went to hear music. I, it's just, I just terrible. Like, I just got after three hours. I said I'm not going to read any stories. You the, know, the doom scrolling is just. I, I mean, for and then the, you go past the news because you're always checking every minute to what's said on social media. And I yeah. even stay off Facebook. I even just go to Threads, and even there, it's just like on both sides. It's just so it's hysterical terrible. and mean. It's just terrible. It's just awful, awful. And it amplifies the harshest voices. Yeah. And, and and so do you have time where you don't because yeah, you can talk to your brother several times a day I'm, I'm you know i'm trying i listen to music i watch movies i try to last week i managed to read a little bit first three four weeks it was just impossible it was just that it was 24 7 and how much scroll. did you have to file how many story how often did you have to file articles well it depends i write every day mm -hmm. that's just daily news and there are biggest, bigger magazine stories that are over the weekend. Uh, so, so what are you, what are you covering today? Today, oh, today I covered uh, Elon Musk reminding us that he is an anti-Semite himself. <laughs> yeah, that was some incredible stuff. Oh my God! What an idiot! And there is. You know what's got me? His name sounds Israeli. Like I used to think yeah. he was Israeli. I didn't know he was a Christian with Elon. Yeah. He came from South Africa, and yeah. he is an. He's just a white nationalist. Well, they just did a study that the, not even close to any other social media outlet that's having trending about hate messages about Jews and hashtags and lies no. about yeah. Jews. Yeah, yeah. He, he turned Twitter into some really just, just Nazi haven. So do you read Twitter? I stay off of Twitter. <laughs> do you need to as a reporter? I have reporting to. anti-Semitic? Yeah. I have to. Though Twitter is not a reliable news source anymore. So I don't have to be there that much. Um, but, yeah, but I need to be around because Elon Musk will do this thing. And there is this crazy story about, I don't know if you heard about um, that TikTok video that called that told people to go and read Bin Laden's letter to America from 2002. So this girl, uh, she came up with a TikTok clip and she said that she read... Bin Laden's letter. Do you remember that letter from 2002? He wrote over there, why we attacked you. And it was all, um, um, you help Israel, you help the Jews, uh, the creation of Israel is the biggest humanity crime ever. Um, and we attacked you, we attacked civilians because you pay the taxes and these taxes, they finance uh, um, American military all over the world and stuff that I think that for today's young and not that educated generation they sound like wait wait a minute he makes sense <laughs> so she told people to go and read this letter and people went and read this letter and that became viral and it was terrified to see young Americans saying well they had they had a reason to do 9/11, and you know kids who weren't even born or bigger than, so that that became a big story. So I wrote about that. You write you write about like what happened when the Taliban took over, what happened to women, what happened to yeah. <laughs> Look, um, 
we have so many problems going forward. One of them is social media. The other is just education system that does not teach these kids history of the world, a true history of the world. How many kids today do you think know about the Holocaust? Well, Holocaust yeah. denial now with the last people dying. So, Tzibi, yeah. what's your... When you you got to find hope. You can't as human yes. beings to go forward. You got to look for hope as a reporter. You got to look for not just drowning in the misery. What what are your reasons or possible reasons for hope for what's going to come out of the other side of this horrible, horrible war? Um, it's difficult to find hope today, but yeah, you have to. Um, I think one thing I've seen happening. It's still it's it's on the sideline in Israel. You don't hear a lot about it, but I think one one good thing that happened is the, the yeah, Israeli Arabs. Um, they are, I think there was a poll among Israeli Arabs and they said that they never felt more Israelis than now. That's interesting. Um, I think there are some collaborations. I think there is a desire to maybe build a country anew. You definitely need a new new leadership. What's going to happen after Netanyahu? Are these crazy right wingers who are now in the government? Are they going to continue in the government? Will there be any kind of backlash, or will this? Per, how is how is Israel going to be changed, or will they embrace? I think what we're going to have is first. I think at least for in the near future, the country will go even further to the right. I think that's inevitable. Um, you have a lot of people who define themselves as left or center left and they will tell you we are sober now because this was terrible um and so i think the country will go further to the right but i can't the, the thing is that we don't even remember israel without netanyahu we don't even remember that this was at least until it's Haq Rabin's assassination. This was a great country that actually tried to do peace. And there's an entire generation. If you are under 30 in Israel, you don't even remember a, when Israel didn't have Netanyahu as prime minister. You don't remember this. So I think there, should, there would be a moment where <laughs> hopefully the country will break out of these Netanyahu shackles. But until then, until then we're in trouble. How are you gonna roll with it? One day at a time, you know, at some point, I think in the next, next couple of months, I'll go back and visit. Um, and uh, you, you gotta have hope. You gotta have hope, otherwise, what's the point? Hopefully, uh, the kidnapped will go back, will come back, and and people can start really grieve and heal. And maybe at some point we'll have an, a leader that will decide, okay, this doesn't work, let's do peace. Ariel Sharon concluded that before he died. It's Rabin concluded that, Menachem Begin, they're all right-wingers. They all decided that. Ehud Ulmert wanted to do peace. All That's right. the only way. Peace is the only way. At the end, peace is the only way. Your lips to God's ears. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I hope that your friend's seven 
relatives make it out. I hope Thanks. your brother stays safe and your family stays safe. Thanks. And yeah, we're going to keep wishing for a better day. Yeah. Thank you. And good. How can people, you know, I, I can't find many of your stories in English on Ynet. I get them from a few years old. Yeah. Do they not translate most of them? No. So we no. can't read you. If you if you read Hebrew, you can. Yeah, I got to work on the vowels. <laughs> <laughs> I have trouble with the vowels. Okay. Sivy Smilovitz, American correspondent for Israel's largest circulation print newspaper, Yediot Akhranot. You can read some of her stuff in English on ynetnews.com or all of it in Hebrew. Thank you so much. You're going through, you know, my heart goes out to everyone in the Middle East and the people living here from the Middle East and what, what these times are like. And hopefully we'll get to a better place on the other side. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming me. in. You're always welcome here. And thanks to Harry Dross for working the controls. We're going to take it out with the Afro-Semitic experience performing I Wish I Knew How It Would Feel to Be Free. It's Paul Bass inviting you to fly free with us all day, all night, and all weekend long at WNHH, New Haven's home for community radio. Mm-hmm.